Amen. Let's just give it up one more time. Just for Jesus. It's a blessing that we have a worship team that uh, is here each and every week, uh, that they lead us uh, to, to worship the Lord the way that they do. Uh, man, it's, it's a privilege to get to sing together with all of you and to be gathered in the house. I know last year was a little weird, wasn't it, when we didn't get to do that. And so I hope it's been a blessing for you all uh, tonight already just to get to come before the throne to worship the king. So we're going through a series on Habakkuk. We're calling this series Sovereignty in Uncertainty, a study in Habakkuk. It sounds really academic. Uh, it's not, it's just what I came up with and Hannah did a great job with a graphic that I think is really cool. Um, and yeah, so last week we, we started out, we talked about uh, what it is to bring our doubt to God. Are we even able to doubt God? And we answered, yeah, it, it is okay, that God can handle our doubts. And we saw that in Habakkuk chapter one, uh, that he has some questions for God. If you remember Habakkuk, he's a priest. He's probably a temple priest. That's our guess uh, because this uh, passage is written in such a way, all of the book of Habakkuk, there's some liturgical markings that you would only see in something like the Psalms. And so he's probably a Levitical priest because of that. And uh, he's really struggling with uh, the evil that he's starting to see in the people of God. Right, we did our, uh, our five-minute nerd out last week. We'll get to one tonight. Uh, but last week we talked about the fact that there are a lot of bad kings in Israel uh, that Israel had to go into exile. And so here's Judah. It's the last two tribes that haven't gone into exile. They had six good kings out of the 20 kings that they had after King Solomon passed away. Uh, so this is just your quick refresher. So they're, they're kind of holding on now. And here's Habakkuk. He worked with probably Josiah. We know he, he worked under his reign. And King Josiah, the last good king, uh, after he left, uh, the next king that came in, Jehoiakim, just kind of threw it all away. He starts uh, reverting the temple back to pagan worship, doing awful things. And Habakkuk just doesn't understand this. And so he, he questions God. We see that's okay. It's okay. God can handle our doubts. Uh, and with the response of God, it brings up another problem for Habakkuk. And that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. Uh, but first... As always, we have to get to our five-minute nerd out, don't we? I know, people are excited about the five-minute nerd out. So, five-minute nerd out. Five-minute nerd out. Listen, you make one joke about a jingle, right? And when you've got a team that makes it happen, you realize, like, I've set the bar too low. I need to start joking that I need a house or I need to win the lottery, right? Like, if that's gonna happen, that'd be great. Anyway, the five minute nerd out. Thank you, Micah, for getting us a jingle. My man. And so we've got some new faces tonight and just we wanna welcome you uh, if you are new. But just so you know, the five minute nerd out, I worked at Apple, so I know that I'm a geek. I know like that's just who I am. My dad was a computer programmer. I own it, I'm fine. You know, like I don't mind. But the reality is all of you, you're all nerds in something. My wife is a tea nerd, okay? Like, she knows everything about tea. Uh, she is all about tea. In fact, yesterday she had a tea party, you know? So some of you are sports nerds. That's cool, you know? Some of you are math nerds, like accountants. Like, you know the numbers. We need you. We've got people who are financial nerds. We need you as well. There's nothing wrong with being nerdy. It is a term of endearment. So for tonight's five-minute nerd out, what I want to look at is just the rise of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. And what we're going to do with each uh, five-minute nerd out throughout this whole series is we want to kind of build a basis of what's going on historically. The more we understand the context that Habakkuk wrote his book and the day and age in which he wrote his book, the better application we can draw. And so uh, we kind of talked about uh, exile last week and, and the, the fact that the Israelites had to go into exile. And so now this is a, a coming threat. And we want to understand that threat a little bit better. So this is... 
your five-minute nerd out. Five minutes or less. Let's see if I can do it this week. All right, so Babylon. Where's Babylon? Modern-day Iraq. That's right. We got one down here. Modern-day Iraq. So uh, the name Chaldeans, that's what you'll see often in Habakkuk, the Chaldeans. Uh, it's really, it's a synonym for Babylon. So the Chaldeans, they derive from the ruling class that lived in southern Mesopotamia, they took leadership in the Neo-Babylonian Empire. It is the last and greatest dynasty to rule Babylon uh, as well. So thus Chaldean, it's a synonym, we said that for Babylon. The Chaldeans were Semites. That was kind of a new thing to me as I was researching all of this. They're descendants of Chesed, the son of Abraham's brother Nahor. And we see that in Genesis 22, 22. So immediately, that kind of jumped out to me. You've got Habakkuk, like, man, how could you use a people more evil than your own chosen people? And it's actually, it is a Semitic group of people that are coming to put the Judeans into exile. Fun facts. So uh, the rise of the Neo-Babylonian Empire, uh, the way that they kind of came into being, the Assyrians kind of ruled it all. So Assyria's capital was Nineveh, which uh, if you know the book of Jonah, uh, Jonah had to go tell Nineveh to repent. And they did. And so God kind of spares Nineveh for a time. Uh, but basically, the Assyrian kings, like after one specifically died in 626, it just kind of created this chaos. And so uh, the first uh, ruler of this Neo-Babylonian empire was a general. His name is Nabopolassar. Let's say that, Nabopolassar. Nabopolassar. There you go. That's a fun name, right? How many of you are going to name your kids that? Probably not anybody here. This guy's a liar. So... Nabopolassar was formally crowned as the king of Babylon, and he was able to restore Babylon as an independent kingdom because he went in and he was able to overthrow the city of Babylon. He was finally able to take it back from the Assyrian Empire because of all of the infighting that was happening after the king uh, of Assyria died. And so there's a guy named Sinshereshkun. <laughs> Don't name your kid that one. Sinshereshkun was the ruler of the Assyrian Empire who tried to rise up uh, to, to take his claim. And so he... Uh, is in the middle of fighting all this to try to get his rule, and that's when Nabopolassar takes advantage. And so Shinshereshkin doesn't like that. Shinshereshkin has to come down south. He goes back to Babylon, and he's trying to take it back over, and he's actually pretty successful in this counterattack. But there's more infighting that happens back in Assyria, so he has to retreat to go deal with that so that he doesn't lose his empire, which allows Nabopolassar to now consolidate his rule. So he's not just taking over uh, Babylon. He starts taking over all of the cities that used to make up Babylon. And now he's starting to push north to get up to Assyria as well. Keep in mind, the Assyrians ruled and kind of reigned supreme in this entire region for 300 years. They started this in about 900 BC. And here we are. We're in 626 BC. So 623 is when uh, Shin had to retreat. Uh, they consolidate the reign. Let's cut to 615 BC. And now you have the Medes, which these are folks from modern day Iran. So the Medes, uh, they also don't like the Assyrians. So they're like, hey, let's go jack them up because there's all that infighting. So that's what they do. They go back up. They start fighting. The Assyrians, uh, they actually overthrow the city. It was kind of, uh, at that point, the political heart of Assyria. It's still the religious heart of Assyria today. So they overthrow the city of Assur. And Nabopolassar kind of seizes the opportunity here. So he goes up and he makes a treaty with the Medes right as they start to kind of plunder Assur. And so then together they get to march on Nineveh. So a couple years later, what do they do? They take down Nineveh and Assyria at this point has basically been overthrown. 
right? So Neo-Babylonians, they were no joke. The Egyptians, right, we're all over the place, aren't we? We've got the modern-day Iraqis. We've got modern-day uh, Iran. Uh, you're talking about Syria. Now you've got the Egyptians, okay? So the Egyptians, they sided with the Assyrians, and the Egyptians are like, whoa, like they were friends with the Assyrians. If, if these Babylonians, like they're pretty vicious. If they get down to us, we're in trouble. So they try to cut up to, to help defend uh, the, the Assyrians as well. And if you remember last week, we talked about King Josiah died in battle. This was the battle. As the Egyptians were trying to get up to join up with the Assyrians, uh, they killed him. He was trying to cut them off. It didn't work out. They ended up meeting up. So uh, if you go to, where is it at? Uh, Ezekiel 30 and Jeremiah 46 in scripture, it actually talks about the battle of Carchemish. And so this battle of Carchemish is pretty bloody. The Egyptians, this is kind of their last stand. And the Babylonians, they're just not having it. And the Egyptians, they're so afraid, even at the start of the war, that many of their leaders were just like, peace, we're out. Like literally they just run. They turn tail and they're, they're booking it back to Egypt. And here's how brutal the Babylonians are. Even though many Egyptians had a several day head start, the Babylonians literally chased down and slaughtered every single Egyptian down to the last man. Every single one of them. And here's how brutal they were. If they took you into captivity, they would actually take a hook and they would hook it right through your bottom lip. Giant hook through your bottom lip and they would just run a string through everybody and they would march you back single file. Back to wherever it was that they wanted to take you. This is a brutal people, the Chaldeans. And so that's what we read about last week in Habakkuk 1, 5 through 11. God's saying, yeah, I'm raising this group of people up, and they're vicious. He even said, verse 8, their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather, gather captives like the sand. This is the future that, ba that Habakkuk is looking forward to. It's a great story, right? You're just like, man. That's the future that I want. Nobody's sitting here saying that. Because we can sit here and, and know, man, these guys, they, they mean business. And that's why uh, they chase down the Egyptians. Like, he knows this. That's exactly what God is referring to as he's talking about these things in Scripture. And so, just as we build this context, as we see what's going on here, this isn't just history. This isn't just uh, something that we get to read about. This stuff happened. This is a real prophet, a real person who really struggled with the problem of, of evil, who really struggled with his doubt, and he wanted to know, what can I bring to the people of God to bring them any sort of comfort in all of this? And that's a great question, isn't it? That's something that I think that we all need uh, ourselves. And so that's the setting for tonight as we pick up in Habakkuk chapter one. Uh, tonight we're gonna be in verse 12 and we're gonna go all the way through chapter two, verse eight. Uh, so we'll read it in little bits and pieces here. But if you've got your Bible with you, feel free to open to Habakkuk one. We've also got the sermon notes as always in the sermon, uh, in the, the, um, the Bible app. Uh, and then you can also get that if you go to, uh, what is it, the Element City Church app. You can tap sermon notes there too. So Habakkuk 1, starting in verse 12, says this. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you've ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of fewer eyes to see than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man? more righteous than he. And so just even here, 
First couple of verses, we already see a couple points from last week reemphasized. One, God can handle your doubts. Habakkuk knows this. He's learned this because he questions God in the, uh, the earlier section, and the response from God isn't, why you little? You know, it's, he, he comes back graciously, and he tells him what's going on. He tells him what he's doing. But remember, uh, the second point was we've got to remember God's character when we come to him with our doubts. We can't just come guns blazing, accusing him of being something that he is not. And Habakkuk gets that. That's why he refers to him right away. You who are of everlasting. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil cannot look at wrong. This is a guy who knows his God. He knows his Lord. And he knows what he's doing. Let's pick it up here uh, in verse 14. It says, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. Remember the hook? Right? He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? And then chapter 2 verse 1 he says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Remember last week we talked about Habakkuk. He's kind of the emo prophet. This is the super emo part, right? He's like, God, why are you doing this? I guess I'll wait for it, right? He's got his comb over probably. He's like, I'll listen to Rise Against and the new My Chemical Romance, and it will get me through as I wait for the answer from God. And so what... Kidding. Uh, so Dr. Constable, he's got a, a great Bible commentary online that's free. This is what he says about these, uh, these first two questions that Habakkuk uh, asks of the Lord. He says, the prophet's first question in verses two through four of chapter one arose out of an apparent inconsistency between God's actions and his character. He was a just God, but he was allowing sin in his people to go unpunished. His second question arose out of the same apparent inconsistency. Yahweh was a just God, but he was allowing terrible sinners to succeed and even permitted them to punish less serious sinners. These questions evidenced perplexed faith rather than weak faith. Clearly Habakkuk had strong faith in God, but how God was exercising his sovereignty baffled him. Notice how that section ends. Habakkuk says that he's waiting for God to hear his complaint. And just a really quick thought. When you have questions for God, when you pray to God, do you actually expect an answer right away? I know so often I'll pray and I just throw the words up there and then after that I walk on and I go on with my day like that didn't even happen. How often do we go to God not even expecting him to answer the simple prayers that we pray? We've gotta develop this attitude that Habakkuk has that if we're gonna pray to God, that we expect that he is gonna answer. That's pretty bold that he's willing to stand there, that he's saying, God, I know you're gonna come through so I'm gonna wait for your answer. We need to be people like that. Quick thought. Anyway, that's an aside. Uh, interestingly enough, though, the last verse, uh, chapter one there, when he talks about what I will answer concerning my complaint, that word actually uh, also translates as rebuke. And so really what Habakkuk's saying is, I'll wait for the Lord to answer me, and then I'll start thinking about what I'm gonna say when he rebukes me. So here's Habakkuk. He knows he's challenging God. He knows that he's like, okay, God was merciful. He was gracious to answer me the first time. I'm gonna be a little bold now. And then now he's, he's getting more uh, specific with the Lord. Like, what's going on? Why are you allowing this to happen? And so he, he's afraid that God is gonna come back again, right? Like he's ready for the beating. And how merciful is it that that's not the response from God? 
How wonderful is that? It just allows us to double down. God can handle your doubt. He can handle your questions when you have your questions. Uh, and he's, he's more than sufficient. The other thing that I think that's important to see there, uh, that comment that we said before, this isn't a weak faith in Habakkuk. This is a perplexed faith. This is a confused faith. And so if you're a person who's struggling, right, maybe uh, you've been taken advantage of. Maybe somebody swindled something from you, they stole from you, and you can't understand why God wouldn't come through for justice. You don't know why God isn't fighting for you in this instance. Or maybe like your kids, they've decided to stop talking to you, and you're just like this bitterness, like, God, why would you allow this? I've done everything for this child. I've sacrificed everything to give what they would need to have the life they need. Uh, Maybe it's a health scare. Maybe it's cancer. Something is settling in and it just doesn't seem fair. Why would God allow that to happen? The mere fact of you going to the Lord with that complaint shows that you still have faith in God. If you didn't have that faith, what would you do? You just go on with your life, right? But the mere fact that you're willing to go to him with that complaint, I want you to see that for the victory that it can be. Because when life is tough, we need those little victories, don't we? We need those little things that we can hold on to that can affirm us and just say, all right, God, I don't understand this. I don't get it. But I'm gonna trust you. That's why I'm coming to you. The mere fact that you're going to him with your doubt, with your complaint, is a sign that you see the glory of God and you see that he's one who can actually answer your complaints, right? Take comfort in that. Let's continue, verse two of chapter two. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. He's talking about the Babylonians. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. His death, or like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects all his own peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own? For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. That's God's word for the Babylonians saying, judgment's coming. He's t- telling Habakkuk, I will come through. And we said that this was the point that we ended with last week and we're gonna start with it again this week. We've gotta remember, God does not overlook evil. He deals with it according to his own time. Next week, when we get into our five-minute nerd out, we're gonna talk about the fall of the Babylonian empire. They didn't have a very long reign. They had about 70 plus years that they were able to reign because God is faithful to his word. And so he even kind of warns the Israelites right away that, uh, hey, it might take a little bit of time for this to happen, but guess what? It hastens to the end. He's saying that this vision, it's eager to get to the end. God wants to bring his justice about, but he's saying, wait for it, be patient. And that's not always easy to do. When we see injustice, when we experience the moral failure of others and it affects us, it's natural for us to wanna see God intervene, right? 
or we talked about people who've been hurt. We've all been hurt at different points in our life. We don't need to go into that. Let's keep it simple. How many times have you been driving on the road and you've got that kind of person who's just swerving in and out of traffic and you're like, man, they're driving like crazy. They're an idiot. Why isn't there ever a cop here? And then all of a sudden you see the lights, right? And then like they pull the person over. That sense of vindication that you feel, it's just so good, right? Or maybe like they get off the horizon, you don't see them and then you like come by like if it's on the freeway and then like a couple miles later the DPS has them and you're just like, yes! Like you're just like so excited, right? When we see these things that affect us, we want to see action. We want to see justice come about. But we have to remember that justice is of the Lord. That this is something that he will bring about, but he's going to bring it about in his own time. And we have to submit ourselves to his plan, to his timing. What's interesting, this whole passage that we read, I don't know if you caught it, but I just want to introduce a couple of ideas here. Right? He, he talks in verse 2 about making this vision plain on tablets. How often do you hear the word tablets used in scripture? Where do you see it the first time? Just someone yell it out. Moses, right? Ten Commandments. If he wants you to write something on a tablet, it's pretty important. Let's keep that in mind. The other thing, too, uh, he talks about the righteous shall live by his faith. This is a direct reference to Genesis 15, 6. Earlier in Scripture, Abraham, it was said of Abraham that he believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. There's new covenant, uh, not new covenant, there's old covenant language here, and God is doubling down on that covenant. He is renewing this covenant. And so I want you to know, this passage that we're reading here, chapter two, specifically verse four, this is one of the most important verses in all of scripture. Not just the Old Testament, all of scripture. This passage here is foundational. And so we really wanna make sure that we glean some good stuff from this tonight. O. Palmer Robertson, in his wonderful commentary on the book of Habakkuk, he says this. He says, once Abraham, the first father of God's people, had to be weaned from expecting too sudden a solution to the tension of his childlessness, despite God's promises, his experience forced him by faith to look beyond the current experience of his day to the distant future. And now Habakkuk struggles with an identical tension. How can God fulfill his promises to his people when he's about to devastate them? The divine answer to his perplexity must be written on the tablets, and many proclaimers in the ages to come must run with the message that resolves this problem. The very delay that Habakkuk must accept provides a further indicator of the broader significance of the vision. It is not merely for the present generation. It is for the ages to come. I love that. Why? We are the ages to come. This is a message for us. When God's saying, write this on the tablets, this is a permanent message. This is something that will be declared to my people and I want them to know. And so God wants us to know this. His judgment will come. His justice will come. It will come in his timing. He wants us to wait for it. And that leads us to our second point here. While God may seem slow to establish justice, it's out of his desire that all should repent that he waits. Isn't that beautiful? It's out of his desire that all should repent that he waits. We know he's bringing the judgment. We read it. Verses 7 and 8 talks about the debtors that will suddenly arise, that will awake to make the Babylonians tremble, that they will be spoiled for the people that they let out into captivity. But God is also warning Habakkuk it's not going to be immediate. He tells Habakkuk, and ultimately he's telling the people of Israel, the remnant that remains, 
Wait for it. It's not going to come as quickly as you want. But when we remember God's character, this is important, we should also remember that God is patient, that he is long-suffering. If we truly believe that God is perfect, that God is perfectly holy, then we need to no longer see that patience as a weakness, but rather a kindness that has affected all of us at some point in our lives. Amen? What if in the very dumbest moment of your life, God decided to bring his judgment to you? That's not your story. I know that because you're sitting here. God was patient with you. God was patient with me. I told the story last week when I was frustrated, when my dad was diagnosed with cancer and I just, I gave him the bird. I was done. I was like, God, I don't believe this anymore. The irony of saying that you don't believe in it, right? Like I'm clearly still believed in it. That's why I'm talking to God. Like I said, if I didn't believe, I would have just walked away. And God was kind to me. God didn't strike me with lightning in that moment because God had something better for me. And God knew that there's stuff that I had to learn that I just didn't have the perspective to see it yet. He was gracious, he was merciful, and he showed me all of those things. And he led me, gosh, he led me through one of the toughest seasons of my life and I came out the stronger because of it. My faith was even stronger because of what I went through. And I know that you each have your own stories. You have your own moments in your life that you know you dropped the ball. You know you made a mistake. And God was patient with you. He was loving and his mercy, right? He didn't make you immediately just like done, you're down, you're out. No. He's able to redeem you because he still has something better for you. We've got to remember that. Second Peter 3, 9, it says this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Romans 12, 4, or sorry, 2, 4, it even tells us his kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. The kindness of God in waiting to establish that justice Sometimes it's because he knows that there's a future event that needs to happen in your life and that when that moment comes, everything's gonna change. And so he's protecting you. He's gonna shepherd you through that. And that doesn't mean that everything's gonna go great for you. You're gonna still suffer the consequences of those decisions. Many of you in the room, right, when you drop the ball, it's not like all your consequences went away. You had to bear the, the brunt of that. I have. I've been there too. And yet, there was a future event in your life maybe that God wanted to really break through and use that to bring it all together, to bring you into that relationship with him that he knows uh, that you need. And so really, what's the application for tonight? Like we talk about evil, the problem of evil, the fact that, okay, God sees it, that's cool. God is gonna address it, that's cool. Maybe it's not in the time that we want, that's not as cool, but man, he's still good. We can trust that, right? But here's, here's the main application for tonight. We've got to keep our focus on how we live our own lives. That's why I put it this way. Keep your focus on how you live your life. How often do you sit here in a service and like maybe Jack says something really good and you're like, oh, it's so good. I'm going to text that to my friend because they need that message, Right? Or like tonight, like you'll hear something like, oh man, I know somebody who really needs to hear that message. You know, like we, we're so judgmental, aren't we? Of our friends, we're like, gosh, they should hear this. Uh, and it's just, it's funny that with the advent of social media, how easy it is to just tweet that out to everybody. Cause like, 
I know the three people who need to read this, and this is the best way to make sure that they do. Uh, And yet, what the message here to Habakkuk from God and what his message to you tonight is this. Keep your focus on how you live your life. Regardless of the injustices, regardless of the difficulties that you've experienced. Okay, someone might have taken advantage of you and stolen from you. That doesn't need to define you. Those of you who are dealing with the health issues where it just, again, it doesn't seem fair. Heart issues, cancer, whatever it may be. That doesn't have to define you. Those things aren't meant to define you. We're not meant to bear a victimhood status. Our identity is not wrapped up in that. Our identity is wrapped up in Jesus if we belong to Christ. And when we belong to God, when Jesus is the thing that people see in us more than our victimhood, we want to point people back to Jesus. That's the point of all this, isn't it? That's why we do this. And yet some of you, it's, it's easy to just kind of focus in on the thing that didn't happen. If just this would have been different or just this thing could have happened. And the focus is so much on other people. It's on everything else that's happened over here that what's happened in your own life is you've failed to realize that you've become toxic. I've been there, folks. <laughs> I've been that person where my own frustrations have built up so much that I stopped uh, just adding to the mix the things that I should have been able to add to the mix. I had to repent of that. I had to give that back to God and say, that's not my identity, that's not who I am. The fact that I didn't get this promotion, the fact that I didn't get this thing that I I really thought that you were leading me to, God, it's not fair. But life isn't fair, you never promised it would be, I'm gonna trust you. And man, he's better, isn't he? Like just when you come out on the other side of that and you see the things that you learn, it takes that hindsight. That's why hindsight is 2020. We hate that. Of course we wish foresight was 2020. It's just not. It's just not. We have to accept that. But we can still keep our focus on how we live our lives. So Habakkuk 2.4, again, this is the most one of the most important verses in Scripture. He says this, Behold, his soul is puffed up. Behold, His soul is puffed up. I don't know if I said that right. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. The righteous shall live by his faith. There's a lot to unpack in this one little short verse here. We could spend a lot of time kind of going through all of that. Uh, Jewish tradition, when I read this, I was kind of like, Jewish tradition declared that the 613 laws of the Pentateuch had now been reduced to one by Habakkuk. This one verse is the foundation of three books in the New Testament. The book of Romans, the book of Galatians, the book of Hebrews all spend significant time unpacking the meaning just of this one verse. I don't know if you know that. That's crazy, right? This little tiny minor prophet Habakkuk, you think about the influence that he's had on our faith. That's amazing. Warren Wearsby, uh, he said this. This verse appears three times in the New Testament. Paul quoted it in Romans 1.17. He emphasized righteous. Faith in God results in righteousness for both Jews and Gentiles. He uses it again, Paul, in Galatians 3.11. But this time he stresses the idea of live, the word live. Rather than obtaining new life by obeying the Mosaic law, the righteous person does so by faith. In Galatians, Paul's mainly addressing Gentiles. Now, the writer of Hebrews also quoted this verse in Hebrews 10, 38, but his emphasis was on faith. It is faith that God will reward. 
in the righteous. In this case, the original readers were primarily Jews. In all three cases, live has the broader reference to eternal life. We know that. We talk about faith. We talk about getting to spend eternity with Christ, going to heaven, right? Um, But what we need to know is here in Habakkuk, it's mainly physical life that's in view. Thus, this verse is clearly a very important revelation in the Bible, Bible, even its essential message. It's the key verse in Habakkuk because it summarizes the difference between the proud Babylonians and their destruction with the humble faith of the Israelites and their deliverance. And what's the issue? Their trust in God. Righteousness all throughout the Old Testament. If you ever see that word, I want you to know it's a judicial connotation. So in the Old Testament, when you read about righteousness, it's about a judge who looks at a situation and declares who's right in this situation, right? That's usually what happens with a judge. Someone comes to a judge with a dispute and there's two parties. We know this, prosecution, defense, right? So the judge establishes righteousness in one of the parties. Who's the ultimate judge in the Old Testament? Say it louder. God, right? And so he may have established and appointed people, in the Old Testament to be his judges, and he continues to do that today. But ultimately, who's the the judge? It's God. And so Habakkuk, he's getting the cheat sheet right here from the Lord. The righteous. You want to be declared right by me? You'll do so by your steadfast trust in me. That's how that can be translated, faithfulness. It's really translated steadfast trust. What's steadfast mean? It's like unrelenting, right? Like if you're steadfast, you're not going to give up. I like to think of like a bulldog, right? Like bulldogs are just ugly things and yet they're so cute. But when they want something, like right, when they get mad, like they're gonna just keep going at it. They're just, ugh, there's a relentlessness to them. Steadfast. God wants us in our trust in him to be steadfast. I mentioned this is a direct reference to Abraham in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham, he believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. You want to show God your faith, believe in him, believe in his words. I wrote this here. God is most concerned with how much we trust him and the way that he measures it is how obedient we are to his word. God is most concerned with how much we trust him and the way he measures it is how. It's how obedient we are to the things that he tells us things that he calls us to, the things that he asks us to do, right? We talked about love languages. You might have heard me use this analogy before. How many of you are familiar with the idea of love languages? Yeah, right? Each person, like the way that you feel loved is different than maybe how another person feels loved. God's told us what his love language is. He tells us that through Jesus and John. When Jesus says uh, that the Father reveals all things to me, and that's how I know that the Father loves me, How does the father know that I love him? By being obedient to that. And then Jesus turns that around to his followers. That's to you and me. And he says, the way that you know that I love you is I take the plan that the father made known to me and I make it known to you. Now, if you wanna love me, obey it. If you love me, keep my commands. So often we want justice because we've seen how other people have failed to keep God's commands. And we want that justice in that moment. We're like, oh, God, come through. They should get it, right? And yet we have to remember the mercy that God has shown us. We have to stop focusing on what others didn't do. And we have to start focusing on what we maybe didn't do. Keep your focus 
on how you live your life. Notice that Habakkuk too, he's not confused that the people of God are gonna be punished. I think that's interesting, right? God comes out, he's like, yeah, I see the evil within my own people too. Here's what I'm gonna do about it. Habakkuk's response isn't, uh, well, they don't deserve that. The people don't, like, it's never about that, right? His next question is, how can you use a people more evil than your people to punish your people? But he's not questioning the punishment that God's bringing about. And yet the trap that we ourselves fall into so often is by comparing how sinful we aren't to others, right? We like to look at ourselves and be like, well, look at this person over here. Like, they're just, they're so terrible. Man, I'm so glad I don't struggle with that thing. And yet, who did that in the New Testament? It was a Pharisee. It was a very religious person. What did Jesus do? Rebuked him. How often do we find ourselves comparing ourselves to others? We look at their lives. We look at what they've done wrong. And we're just like, man, at least I'm not that way. But here's what we got to remember. God doesn't grade on a curve. I think we get this in our mind that like, oh man, if, I, if this person's really bad, God kind of has to take me, right? Like I'm not as bad as this person over here. I've done pretty well. And God saying, nope, it's not going to happen. How many of you were in classes that like the curve saved you? Maybe like for me, I totally was. I had an econ class, man, uh, it was brutal. Uh, and the teacher, it was so random. It was a stats class with economics. It, yeah, it, you're all bored already with me just telling you that. That's how it was for me, right? I'm just sitting in class and it's just want, want. Like this, the teacher wasn't great. I'll be honest. He was one of the worst teachers I've ever had. And yet the funny thing was if I went to his office hours, he was brilliant. Like <laughs> it made sense all of a sudden. But I tell you what, the highest grade I got on any test that semester was a 66. And yet even when I got a 66, I got an A because everybody else was in the like 30s. That's how bad it was. <laughs> You know, and it was like that the whole semester was terrible. Oh my gosh, these tests were awful. I was so grateful for the curve. The curve doesn't exist when you stand before God. I hate to tell it to you. And this message, this, this whole idea, the reason uh, it's so important to me, there's someone who's close to me that had a moral failure. I cheated on their wife, and it was someone that was close enough to me that I could be honest with how I felt about that. And I let this person have it. Just, I gave it to him. And my wife was just sitting there, Anya, she was just like, oh my gosh. Like she could not believe the stuff that I said. For an hour and 10 minutes, I let this person have it. And I remember going to my mentor afterwards and I was just like, I don't know what to do. Like how do I even, what do I do from here? And it was interesting that not a single thing he said addressed the situation that I asked him about. Everything he said was, how's your integrity? How's your heart? It's really easy to be upset at this person for what they've done. But how have you failed to love your wife this week? Maybe you didn't cheat on her. But if I'm being honest, I have a really hard time letting my wife interrupt me. That's not a very loving way to be with my wife. I have to be honest about that. My mindset is when I'm busy, I just want to get that done. And then when I'm done, I can pay attention to that. And she's just so sweet and just comes along. And there's times that I'm just awful. And I always am saying I'm sorry. And it's terrible because she's like, I don't want to hear I'm sorry. I just want you to stop doing it. (laughs) 
It's simple, isn't it? It should be. It should be. And yet I can get so selfish because I'm so focused on myself and my own things that I fail to see how I need to be for my wife. And so in this situation, when this person had this moral failure, my mentor's just calling me out and he was letting me know. That person gets to stand before God for what they've done. You have to trust God with that because you can't ultimately have any influence. You can say something, but that person has to make those decisions themselves. You get to make your own decisions every single day of your life. And those decisions that you make show whether or not your trust is in God. Are you living by your faithfulness? When God looks at the way you live your life, would he call you and declare you righteous? It was humbling. It was humbling. And that was when God kind of doubled down on this idea. He doesn't grade on a curve. Each and every one of us, we have to stand before God and we have to give an account of how we've lived our lives, of the decisions that we've made. And when you look back on your life, do those decisions indicate a pattern of righteousness? That's the question that we all have to answer. And so that's the application for this week. I wanna challenge every person who's here to spend time in prayer and ask God to show this to you. God, where... Where am I not living by my faith? Where am I not putting my trust in you? How can I live this out? It's gonna look different for each and every one of us, isn't it? Because we all struggle with different things. We all have different uh, passions and different desires that are at work within us that cause us to sin. And so what tempts one person isn't gonna tempt the other. But we all have to get to a place where we can be honest about who we are before God because that's where he's able to do the work within you. That's when we start to see this uh, change start to happen, right? Because we give him the space and the ability to do that. So as we wrap up, I just wanna invite you to bow your heads, to close your eyes with me. Let's pray. Um, God, I, I do wanna ask that you would move in all of our lives, that throughout this week, would there just be a moment for each and every one of us uh, where we could get alone with you, that we could get quiet and we could say, God, how am I doing with this? Am I focusing too much on other people? Or am I focusing on myself? Am I focusing on the things that I need to be so that you can do the work within me that you wanna do? The reality is, God, you've been so merciful and so gracious to all of us that you withheld your judgment in our darkest moments, in our worst moments. And instead, you've allowed us to be redeemed. And if we've put our faith in you, Jesus, then we've already been restored, we've been cleansed and made pure from our sin. And so now it's up to us to just keep short accounts with you, God. And that's the heart. If we can keep our focus on ourselves, Lord, you're gonna lead us to those moments of repentance where we see that we're going the wrong direction, that our soul might be puffed up within us, kind of like the Babylonians. And we'll see, God, that you're calling us to just take that 180, just to turn around and to walk away from those things so that we can pursue you once again. For those who are in the room who may not know you, who've never placed their hope and their faith in you, Lord, uh, would tonight be a night that they just sense your grace, that they sense your presence, that they understand that, yeah, maybe they've made mistakes in their past too, but what a beautiful thing that it is that you've yet to bring that judgment into their life as well. 
because you do have a hope for them. You do desire that they would come into a relationship with, them, with you. And so if that's you tonight, I just invite you. I invite you to give your life to Jesus. Maybe to pray with me that, uh, that you would pray to receive him. So God, uh, I just admit that I'm a sinner. I admit that I failed and I've tried to live life on my own. And yet you're calling me to something better. You're calling me to yourself. And so I confess that you're Lord of my life. I invite you into my heart. I thank you that you died for my sins to cleanse me of my sins so that I can live forgiven. Now I invite your Holy Spirit inside me to guide me into holy living, to living a way that makes you happy because I want you to be glorified, God. So to you belongs all the honor, all the glory, all the power, Jesus. Would you come have your way with all of us? Would you come and move in the way that we all need? We love you, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.